Due to the graphic nature of this story, listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussion of domestic violence, abuse, and murder. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. On a peaceful Sunday in October 1949, afternoon light shone through the trees onto a dirt path in Griffith Park. While police officer George O'Nan would have liked to enjoy the nice weather, he was there on business. O'Nan sipped his coffee as park rangers led him to the scene. It might have looked unimpressive to a casual bystander. There was no body, no bloody weapon, no definitive sign of struggle. But the small piece of evidence might have been the first major break in a murky case. A crumbled bundle of cloth lay on the ground. Officer Onan carefully reached down to examine it. It was a handbag with its handles torn off, possibly in a struggle between the victim and a mugger. Peering inside, he examined the purse's contents. Other than a lone silver dollar, there was no cash. Onan's brow furrowed. That suggested a mugging gone wrong. But the next thing that caught his attention sent a cold shiver down his spine. A note read simply, Kirk, can't wait any longer. Going to see Dr. Scott. It will work best this way while Mother is away. Onan didn't know what to make of the letter, but it suggested that Purse's owner had been up to something more nefarious than a stroll in the park. That meant his investigation was bigger than a simple mugging. He looked back over the little evidence they had. An empty handbag, an unsigned note, and a missing woman who had vanished without a trace. Welcome to Gone, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every other Monday, we examine mysterious disappearances and the theories they spawn. From the Amber Room to Michael Rockefeller, Picasso paintings to the Etruscan language, the Roanoke Colony to the lost Russian cosmonauts. If it's gone, we're looking for it. You can find all episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Gone for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Gone in the search bar. Today, we're looking into the disappearance of Jean Spangler, a nightclub dancer and aspiring Hollywood actress who vanished mysteriously in October 1949. Later investigations suggest she may have fallen victim to a jealous ex, a mafia contact, or a legendary movie star. Jean Elizabeth Spangler disappeared on October 7, 1949, supposedly after leaving an overnight film shoot. An extensive search was largely unsuccessful, uncovering only her handbag and a mysterious note inside. Thanks to a botched police investigation and these baffling clues, there are three prominent theories. The first is that Jean was murdered and her body disposed of. She could have been killed by a former lover or maybe even her ex-husband who was still bitter over a lost custody battle. Or Jean might have died during a secretive medical procedure. We can only speculate. But perhaps it was so shameful or taboo, the doctor may have hidden her body to get rid of the evidence. 
And finally, Jean may not have died at all. She could have fled Los Angeles to escape dangerous enemies like a wronged mafioso. Jean's family moved to Los Angeles in the mid-1930s, just as she was about to start high school. Jean soon fell in love with LA's modern sprawl and the promise of stardom. When she graduated from Franklin High School in 1941, she set her sights on making it in Hollywood. 18-year-old Jean was, by all accounts, a charming and driven young woman. She worked several low-paying jobs while she dreamed of seeing her name in lights. Luckily for Jean, her talent and her good looks turned heads. She soon began modeling for a local department store. But Jean wasn't content as a model. She wanted to be a star. She used all of her charm to make connections. But her big break wasn't what she'd expected. She was hired as a nightclub dancer at the famous Earl Carroll Theater in Hollywood. Though the club was hardly a movie set, Jean appreciated the opportunity. Earl Carroll was a prominent player on the Sunset Strip, and his club drew in lots of well-known and wealthy people. The gig would certainly allow her to network. Jean relished the chance to rub shoulders with so many movers and shakers, even if the club had a sleazy reputation. And she used her charm to get to know the regulars intimately. As her career started to flourish, so did her love life. She dated Dexter Benner, who often frequented the club. He was a plastics manufacturer and a recent USC graduate. Since he wasn't involved in show business, he didn't seem like an obvious match for the career-focused Jean. But the two hit it off. She was clearly attracted to his charismatic personality, but it's possible that she was also drawn to his wealth. The pair hastily married in 1942, only a few months after they'd met, and everything seemed normal, at least for a little while. By the end of the first year, they were at each other's throats. It was clear that Benner didn't relish the nightlife like his wife did. He hoped that once they married, Jean would settle down into a more traditional domestic life. But she wasn't ready to give up her dreams. Night after night, Jean Spangler went out. At the club, she networked and even flirted with potential contacts. When she came home, sometimes well after midnight, Benner responded with fury and violence. After six months of abuse, Jean filed for divorce on the charge of cruelty. We don't know why, but shortly after submitting the paperwork, Jean dropped the case. The two stayed married even though their relationship remained volatile. They even had a daughter, Christine, two years later. In those two years, Jean hadn't gotten her big Hollywood break. Trapped in a loveless marriage and caring for a new baby, she probably felt hopeless. But in 1944, she got some respite when Benner was drafted into the army. He traveled to the South Seas to fight in World War II. It was common at the time for a mother raising a daughter alone to forego her social life and take care of her child full time. But Jean refused to comply with society's expectations. In fact, she picked up even more shifts at the club, and her social life became scandalous. With Benner out of sight and out of mind, Jean carried on multiple affairs, some quietly and others openly. 
One of her boyfriends was in the armed forces, a man only known as Lieutenant Scotty. Scotty wasn't a great match for Jean, to say the least. He spent all of her money and wrecked her car. And like Benner, Scotty had a cruel streak. Jean regularly showed up to work with bruises and even told her friends that Scotty was abusive. But every time she tried to break up with him, Scotty got more violent. For most of their relationship, Jean stayed with him because she thought she had no choice. Jean said that on one occasion, Scotty threatened to murder her. She figured he was bluffing, but it finally gave her the courage to leave him for good. After all, she told a lot of people about Scotty's threats and violence. If anything ever happened to her, Scotty would be suspect number one. He was too smart to risk arrest by making good on his threats. Jean was right. She dumped Scotty and he left her alone. She thought she was free of the nasty affair. That is, until her husband came home from the war. In 1945, Benner was discharged from service. When he heard that his wife had cheated on him, he was outraged. Even worse, she'd spent all of their money on her various boyfriends. Benner sued Jean for divorce and for custody of their daughter, Christine. During the divorce hearings, Jean moved in with her mother, Florence, and sister-in-law, Sophie. There, she dug in her heels for the custody battle. Benner and Jean fought tooth and nail for Christine. Benner accused Jean of abandonment since she'd moved out and left Christine in his care. The judge sided with Benner, granting him full custody, but he allowed Jean regular visitation. Defying the court, Benner refused to let Jean see her daughter on 23 separate occasions. But this petty victory cost him. Jean came back swinging, and in 1948, she sued Benner. After another lengthy court battle, she was awarded full custody. The judge dismissed Benner's criticism of Jean's lifestyle, saying that her job as a glamour girl was no different than any other career. And he cited Benner's history of abuse as another reason to deny custody. With her daughter back, Jean Spangler was on top of the world. She worked at multiple clubs and brought in enough money to support herself and Christine. Better yet, she felt closer to becoming a true movie star than ever before. In 1948, 25-year-old Jean Spangler's hustling finally paid off. She landed several background roles in Hollywood productions. On top of that, her personal life was as fast-paced as ever. Now that the custody battle was settled, she started having fun again. She dated men from all walks of life, from gangsters to actors, even Ronald Reagan. They showered her with attention and with gifts. Jean even told her friends that she was about to receive a large sum of money, but she wouldn't say where it was coming from. Jean Spangler was on top of the world on October 7, 1949. She dressed up and stepped out of the house at 5 p.m. On her way at the door, she told her sister-in-law Sophie, wish me luck. According to Sophie, Jean was on her way to meet Benner. They were discussing an increase in child support payments. Afterward, she was going to an overnight film shoot that would last about eight hours. As she left, nothing appeared out of the ordinary. Two hours later, 
Jean called Sophie to check in on Christine. So far, everything seemed to be going according to plan. But the next morning, she didn't come home. Sophie started to worry. She knew Jean's history with Dexter Benner and grew concerned for her safety. Sophie filed a police report, but the authorities didn't immediately start looking. Jean was supposed to have been working all night, so really, she'd only been missing a few hours. But after a full day passed with no sign of her, the Los Angeles Police Department finally launched a full-blown search. Over the course of their investigation, the investigators put together the details of Jean's night on October 7th. And when they did, they found several inconsistencies. Dexter Benner reported that he hadn't met with his ex-wife. In fact, he hadn't had any contact with her for weeks. In addition, Jean hadn't been called in for any work that evening. Nobody could say for sure where she'd gone or why she'd lied to Sophie about her whereabouts. The only things that were clear were, one, Jean Spangler's night didn't go as planned, and two, she had something to hide. Up next, the LAPD investigates Jean Spangler's disappearance. And now, back to the story. On October 7, 1949, 26-year-old dancer and actress Jean Spangler mysteriously disappeared. Her sister-in-law, Sophie, claimed that Jean called around 7 p.m. to check in on her daughter, Christine. But Jean never returned to the home she shared with her mother and sister-in-law. She didn't write, and she didn't call. On October 9th, the LAPD released a description and asked anyone with information about Jean Spangler to call a tip hotline. A farmer's market owner came forward to say he'd spotted Jean at his establishment the night she disappeared. She'd loitered for two hours, like she was waiting for someone. Another witness told the police that they'd seen her around 7 p.m. at a restaurant called The Cheese Box. She ate hot dogs with a tall, clean-cut man who was about 35 years old. But the description didn't match her ex-husband, who Jean was supposed to meet around that time. The cheese box's disc jockey, Al the Sheik Lazar, corroborated the account of Jean's meeting with an unidentified 35-year-old. And he poked more holes in the story Jean had told Sophie. She hadn't left to go to a movie set. She was still at the restaurant at 2 a.m., this time arguing with two men at her table. Police weren't certain what became of Jean after that, but the next tip suggested it wasn't anything good. A worker at Griffith Park found a handbag and called the cops. He wasn't sure the purse had anything to do with the missing woman, but it seemed worth looking into. It looked like the handles had been torn off, as if the bag had been violently ripped away from someone. The purse contained a handwritten note that read, Kirk, can't wait any longer. Going to see Dr. Scott. It will work best this way while Mother is away. When the police called Sophie, she confirmed that the bag belonged to Jean. She had no idea who Kirk or Dr. Scott were, but the LAPD immediately deemed them persons of interest. Since the handbag was found in Griffith Park, it was a natural place to begin the search. 
The LAPD recruited around 200 volunteers to comb through the park, but simultaneously released a statement saying Jean had suffered a slight illness, but would return shortly as soon as she felt better. This was the first of many instances where the Los Angeles Police Department minimized or ignored the facts of Gene Spangler's disappearance. It's hard to say why they intentionally released misinformation. Maybe they didn't want to cause a panic over a possible murder or kidnapping. But maybe the police weren't that interested in finding Gene at all. As a dancer with a divorce in her past and multiple boyfriends in the present, Jean was anything but a prim and proper lady. It's very likely department officials didn't think that she was worth the resources to mount a proper investigation. Unsurprisingly, the Griffith Park search didn't turn up anything useful. With no leads, the police interviewed Jean's friends and family. Her ex-husband, Dexter Benner, said he hadn't spoken to Jean in weeks. But Jean's sister-in-law wasn't so convinced. After Brenner heard Jean was missing, he'd come over to pick up his daughter, Christine. But when he arrived at the house, Sophie noticed that his face was scratched up, as if he'd been in a fight. Benner had a hair-trigger temper. He'd abused Jean during their marriage. And with his recent loss of custody, he had the perfect motive to eliminate his ex. Sophie and Jean's mother were convinced he'd gone too far. So the police questioned Benner a second time, a few days after the disappearance. But he stuck to his story. He hadn't seen Jean. The night she'd gone missing, he'd been with his new wife, Lynn Lasky. She backed up his alibi. When investigators asked about the cuts, Benner said that he dropped a case of glasses at work. They'd shattered inches away from his face, cutting him. Since Dexter Benner seemed like a dead end, the police sought other suspects. They turned their attention to another abusive former lover, Lieutenant Scotty. Maybe he'd made good on his threat to kill Jean if she ever left him. Scotty may have been the Dr. Scott in Jean's note, though there's no record of him ever being a physician. In addition, he'd been out of Jean's life for almost five years. There was no evidence that he'd had any contact with her recently. So after the police batted the theory around, they never bothered to question him. Once again, a lead became a dead end when investigators dropped the ball. The police did, however, flip through Jean's diary. They hoped to find references to a secret boyfriend or some other possible suspect. But the journal offered more questions than answers. The pages were littered with a bounty of names. Men, women, ordinary blue-collar workers, and world-famous celebrities. Often, individuals were listed without context, so the police couldn't distinguish which were professional contacts and which were Jean's lovers. There was no way to sort through the list. Once more, the officials dropped potential leads rather than investigating further. But the media was more than willing to take over the investigation for them. The unexplained disappearance of a young, beautiful, aspiring actress was like catnip to journalists. Papers reported on every development in the case, drumming up public attention. And while some of the more salacious elements might have scared the police off the trail, 
they made for flashy headlines that generated even more coverage. Like when Jean's friends revealed that at the time she vanished, she was three months pregnant. Jean wasn't married, and in 1949, the scandal of giving birth out of wedlock might have been enough to torpedo her Hollywood dreams. It's possible that on the night of October 7th, Jean went out to get an abortion. At the time, abortion was illegal, so Jean's secrecy was understandable, and it fit with the vague note in her handbag. Maybe Dr. Scott was a medical professional who performed the operation off the books. Kirk could have been the unborn child's father. With this new lead, the Los Angeles Police Department launched a more thorough search for Kirk and Dr. Scott. They found dozens of physicians who might go by Dr. Scott, men whose first or last name was Scott or some variation on it. But every doctor said the same thing. They'd never treated Jean. Of course, it was unlikely that any doctor would admit to performing an illegal abortion, especially on a missing woman. So the authorities sought out tips. Where did women go for abortions? They finally identified a med school dropout who fit the bill. He went by Scotty or Doc. But Scotty, much like Gene Spangler, had disappeared. And as was now becoming a trend, the police just stopped looking for him. Maybe because a promiscuous divorcee dancer and an illegal abortion provider weren't considered high priority. Or maybe because the culprit had covered up their trail too well. Because the person who silenced them was wealthy and powerful. After all, Jean had dated several wealthy and influential men. If a celebrity, politician, or mobster wanted an illegitimate child out of the way, he could make the pregnant Jean vanish without a trace. The LAPD tried to narrow in on a Kirk, and finally, they hit it. After Jean had been missing for some time, her sister-in-law and mother admitted that Jean had dated a mysterious man named Kirk, the same name from the note in her purse. They'd never met him because he was highly secretive. This was especially strange since Jean liked to publicly show off her other lovers. It's unclear why Sophie lied about this before, perhaps because she was solely focused on Dexter Benner and firmly believed he was guilty. Regardless, a lead was a lead. Police scoured Jean's Rolodex, searching for any man named Kirk with the motive and the means to cover up a murder. To their astonishment, they found an actor who fit the bill perfectly, silver screen megastar Kirk Douglas. Earlier that year, Jean had appeared as a background dancer in a film called Young Man with a Horn, starring Kirk Douglas. Not only was Douglas wealthy and influential, he took an unusual interest in Jean's disappearance. In fact, he called the police station before they could even contact him for an interview. On the phone, Douglas said he'd heard about Jean Spangler in the news. Everyone in the Southland had. But he didn't remember meeting her on set. He told the police that he didn't see much point in meeting them in person since he had nothing more to say. Whether they were starstruck or just disinterested, the police took Douglas at his word. 
They thanked him for calling in and encouraged him to phone again if he remembered anything later on. A few days later, Douglas called back. He'd been talking to a friend about Jean's disappearance. The friend referred to her as the tall girl in the green dress. At that description, Douglas immediately put a face to the name. He announced that he had known her after all. He was calling back in the spirit of transparency. Now, he said, they had met on the set and kidded around. Kirk Douglas was an infamous ladies' man and liked to flirt with his co-stars. So it wasn't out of the ordinary that he'd exchanged banner and shy smiles with Jean. But he made it very clear that they hadn't gone any further than that. The two had no romantic relationship. Once again, the police didn't follow up or interview him in person. After all, Douglas had been on vacation in Palm Springs over 100 miles away at the time of Jean's disappearance. Police Chief Brown accepted Douglas's explanation and never formally considered him a suspect. Kirk Douglas was another dead end, just like Jean's ex-husband, Dexter Brenner, and her ex-boyfriend, Lieutenant Scotty. All these men had potential motive and the means to make Jean disappear. But since the police failed to investigate these men further, it's hard to say whether any of them had anything to do with her disappearance. And after Douglas's phone call, the trail went cold. The lack of thorough detective work also meant that there was a lack of hard evidence. Since Jean told her friends that she was pregnant, we'll take her at her word. But besides the note in her purse, there's no record Jean ever saw a doctor around the time she vanished, and no confirmation of the alleged pregnancy. But that isn't that suspicious. Abortions were illegal, and Jean would have sought treatment with the utmost secrecy. That would also explain why her body never turned up. If a doctor botched the procedure, they'd have to get rid of the evidence or face arrest. But the problem with the secret abortion theory is that it doesn't line up with the witness timeline. Multiple witnesses spotted Jean at the farmer's market and later at a restaurant called The Cheese Box. It's highly unlikely Jean's appointment was scheduled after 2 a.m., the last time she was seen at The Cheese Box. Now, it's possible that she was at the restaurant to meet with an abortion doctor who never showed. But if he were a no-show, that doesn't explain why Jean vanished. Thanks to the case's media coverage, the tips kept coming in. And one call to the police tip line suggested a more violent end for Jean Spangler. A gas station attendant named Art Rogers claimed that on the night of October 7th, the same night Jean disappeared, a man pulled up to the gas station in a blue-gray convertible. A woman sat slumped in the passenger seat. Rogers didn't get a good look at her because she ducked down like she was trying to stay out of sight. Before Rogers could ask any questions, the man ordered him to fill up the tank. He added, we're going to Fresno. When the car drove off, the woman turned and yelled to Rogers, get our license plate number and call the police. Rogers did just that, although at the time he didn't know why. Because once he saw the story of Jean Spangler in the news, he noticed that her description matched that of the woman in the car. As Rogers speculated to the police, 
maybe Jean Spangler had been kidnapped, and the men who spirited her away were some of the most dangerous in all of Los Angeles, enforcers for the Mafia. Next, police uncovered Jean's unlikely connection to the Hollywood mob. Now, back to the story. Jean Spangler was a 26-year-old nightclub dancer, aspiring movie star, and a young mother. But her story took a dark turn when she vanished on October 7, 1949. Sadly, the police repeatedly failed to follow up on leads, but the media stepped in. Jean Spangler's story was big news. The tabloids were also afire with another unsolved case, the 1947 Black Dahlia murder. Some speculated that Jean Spangler's disappearance could be connected to the Black Dahlia, later identified as Elizabeth Short. Both women were aspiring actresses with dark, curly hair. And like Jean Spangler, some think that Elizabeth Short was killed by an underground abortionist, though it's highly unlikely that Short's unsolved murder was an accident, based on the way the body was found. If that were the case, a serial killer might be the culprit. But police quickly dismissed the theory. They speculated that serial killers committed murders for attention. They wanted their victims to be found. Based on the horrors of the Black Dahlia crime scene, it would be odd if Jean had been killed by the same person, but not posed in a similar way. Since Jean's corpse hadn't turned up, she'd probably met some other fate. We should note that this stereotype that serial killers want to show off isn't universally true. And not all killers follow the exact M.O. for every victim, especially when they're starting out. The fact that investigators were so quick to dismiss a potential connection is just one more instance where the LAPD may have failed Jean. But the police claimed they had no reason to explore far-fetched theories about serial killers when they had more compelling suspects, the people who Jean knew personally. As the LAPD combed through Jean's Rolodex, they discovered a surprising connection between the vibrant socialite and the mafia. In 1949, the Los Angeles mob was incredibly active. The film and television industry had a seedy underbelly where organized crime flourished. Gene's social circle included several people associated with prominent Hollywood boss, Mickey Cohen. Mickey Cohen had a dangerous enemy in Sicilian mobster Jack Dragna, known as the Capone of Los Angeles. Dragna ruthlessly attacked anyone who had any association with Cohen, no matter how slight. He could have come after Gene. One of Gene's closer associates was David Little Davy O'Goole, who was also one of Mickey Cohen's top enforcers. Prior to her disappearance, Jean had been seen with O'Goole on multiple occasions in Las Vegas, Palm Springs, and at a hotel in the L.A. area. Suspiciously, O'Goole disappeared the same week as Jean, almost as if they were part of the same hit. However, David O'Goole was going to be a witness in an upcoming trial, which meant he had a target on his back. So he had a firm motive to flee the country. But if she heard O'Goole was leaving town, 
Maybe Jean decided to escape with him. It could have been to escape Dragna, or perhaps Ogul was another one of her many suitors and she didn't want to live without him. Either way, a few months after her disappearance, customs agents in El Paso, Texas, reported that they saw two men with a woman who matched Jean's description. Sightings of the three continued throughout 1950. In March, the trio were placed in Mexico City. None of the witnesses could confirm the identity of the individuals, so the police couldn't prove that the group included Jean and Ogul. Nor did they have any theories about who the other man was. Plus, these sightings all occurred after Jean had already made the news, so the witnesses could have been influenced by the pictures in the papers. It wouldn't be the first time that someone saw what they wanted to see in lieu of reality. And the police never received any more concrete evidence about the unidentified men and the woman. The theory that Jean fled with gangsters fits her strange behavior the night she went missing. And it explains the lies she told her family. If they knew where she was going, they'd be in danger. But there's one huge flaw in this story. Jean would never have abandoned her daughter. Jean's desire to be a good mother is well documented. After all, in 1946, her husband won custody of Christine. If Jean wanted to pursue a glamorous life of romance and stardom free of parental responsibility, she had her chance. But instead, she fought until she got Christine back in 1948. If Jean planned to leave the country, she would have brought Christine with her. It's possible she didn't go willingly. Maybe she was abducted by Ogul or his associates, but that doesn't explain why she lied about her whereabouts that night. Which means, unfortunately, Jean probably didn't disappear by choice. There's something appealing about the idea that she lived a glamorous second life in Mexico. But there's just too little evidence to make this believable. As the months passed by, Jean's case grew cold. Eventually, all of the detectives were pulled off the investigation. Her file was stashed away and forgotten. Seventy years later, Jean Spangler's case remains unsolved. Her mother and sister-in-law were always adamant that her ex-husband, Dexter Benner, killed her. But they've never been able to produce anything more concrete than their suspicions. Amateur sleuths have also attempted to solve the case. Over time, the theories have gotten more outlandish. Some suspected Dr. George Hodel, who performed abortions in Los Angeles around the time that Jean went missing. After an arrest for molestation and incest, Hodel was released on bail just two days before Jean vanished. During an unrelated inquiry into the Black Dahlia case, authorities thoroughly investigated Hodel. Even though he was never charged regarding Jean or the Black Dahlia, the heat was too much for Hodel. During the investigation, he fled to the Philippines. Years later, his son Stephen, a private detective and retired police officer, wrote a book claiming that his father was a serial killer. In the book, Black Dahlia Avenger, Stephen listed the deaths that he thought were connected to his father, including Gene Spangler's. But there's no hard evidence linking Hodel to Gene. Like every other theory in this case, 
It rests in the realm of speculation. In all the investigations over the years, three main theories have stayed consistent. A murder, an abortion gone wrong, or a mob-related kidnapping. Yet none of these explanations fit perfectly with the evidence. Jean Spangler's compelling tragedy made her a perfect figure for the press to weave stories around. Every clue introduced a new salacious angle to the mystery. Her life made for a perfect Icarus tale, an attempt to soar to stardom that ended only in a plummet to doom. Jean Spangler was charming and driven. She knew what she wanted, and nothing short of total oblivion could stop her from getting it. In the end, she finally found her dream of Hollywood fame. Even if, sadly, she probably didn't live to see it. Thanks again for tuning in to Gone. We'll be back next week with a short Gone Bite on Spotify and back everywhere else the week after. You can find more episodes of Gone and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Gone for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Gone on Spotify, just open the app and type Gone in the search bar. Just because it's gone doesn't mean it can't be found. Gone was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Gone was written by Matthew Teamstra, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rosner.